Hello, everyone. My name is Rusty Pepper, and I am the host of the Why Marketing Podcast. On this week's show, I'm going to be talking with Garrett Marigouth, the founder and CEO of Directive. I can't wait to share his story in this episode with all of you. So without further ado, let's get it started. Yeah, my name is Garrett Marigouth. I uh, got into this really almost on accident. So I was trying to get into management consulting. I got my master's when I was 21 years old. Um, I thought, okay, I'm ahead of the curve. This is my game. There was nowhere to, I'd apply under other for universities. They have like a pick list, like a drop down. My university not available. So at that moment, I got an auto response and I figured, okay, you know what? Forget this. I'll build my own agency. They'll have to acquire me one day. Problem is I didn't necessarily know, have any hard skills yet other than I think wisdom people and kind of understanding how to just make things happen, whether it was in smaller businesses or this business. So I just decided to keep moving forward. So I figured uh, I have this kind of value system or belief that perception is reality. And so if someone perceives that who you are, they usually assume something about you. And I recognize that uh, older men and women had money. I did not. And they perceived my youth to understand the internet, which they did not. And so I figured that might be a nice exchange. So I proceeded to learn everything I could about search marketing. I kind of, I experimented with all the different internet marketing channels. So you had social, SEO, PPC, content. And the ones that I found were driving revenue or seemed to most likely to drive revenue and had the, what I like to call timing. So there's something around marketing where you can charge a lot of money for timing-based marketing without having huge logos and doing brand. So in other words, there's kind of two ways, I think, to be successful in marketing as a third party. You can do performance-based marketing and you have to perform, or you can do really high-level brand marketing, strategic marketing. You also have to perform, but it's a different type of performance. It's a little bit more based on historical performance than potential performance. And so in other words, people will take a risk on performance-based marketing a little bit more than they will on brand or strategic marketing because of the nature of the game. In other words, you don't have to go against Ogilvy when it comes to SEO. Well, you definitely will when it comes to brand or ad campaigns, um, if that kind of makes sense. And so I figured, okay, as an incumbent newcomer, I can learn this ropes. So I read everything online. I went through, you know, for the last five, six years of posts on Moz, Search Engine Land, Search Engine Journal, just read everything. I had a little motto called learn, engage, create. So if I could learn something new every day, engage with it, I could create more value for myself and my customer. And so I just practiced that and instilled it in the team. I started slowly building around me. Um, and that's kind of how we got here. You know, I, there's a lot of Fiverr stuff in between, a lot of independent consulting. Uh, but yeah, I always had the intention of trying to build the biggest and best search marketing agency on the market. How's it going so far? I mean, it's going pretty good. Uh, I think right around 60 people, got some blue chip accounts, growing every day, getting better every day, more importantly, and just trying to stay focused on, you know, scaling with size of accounts, not volume of accounts, because you cannot maintain your ethos or your spirit or the reason why you got into the game with volume. In other words, you cannot decide that you want to be the best search agency and have the most clients. The two ideas are compulsively against each other. As you scale, the rapidity of your scale grows. As your size of your accounts grow, so also as your volume and velocity of accounts. And when your velocity goes up, your ability to scale talent at the same velocity of a new account acquisition breaks. And so you really have to decide if you're okay doing really good work for the price point 
but not the best work you could do. So I don't think you have to decide that you want to be a bad agency to have volume. I think you just have to decide that you're going to be the best agency you can at that price point. It's not that you don't care. I don't think it's fair to say like, oh, that guy just doesn't even give a crap about good work or something. I think, you know what I mean? A lot of people love to judge and point the finger, but they've never had it. I had it. I've onboarded 16 accounts in a month. And I'll tell you right now, you can't do 16 accounts in a month. Like you can do six, regardless of how big your team is or how good you are. You just can't. And so for us, I decided we're going to, you know, keep raising rates, go after blue chips and then build an agency of blue chips where I feel a hell of a lot better about every work and work product we put out than where we're just, you know, we're better than the other guys, which to me wasn't ever my, doesn't inspire me. doesn't really get me going. Like I don't want to be the best 3k SEO vendor. It just the best 4k PPC guy. This is not really my thing. So you didn't go to school traditionally for this. You know, your, your aspiration was to become a management consultant. Sounds like kind of, I mean, as I figured it out, I mean, I was a kid too. I was playing, I was trying to play pro soccer. Like that was my aspiration. So I grew up playing soccer, had D one offers, got really my scholarship to go to a private school though. So I chose a private Christian school. They were, you know, been to the championships last three years. So I went to Azusa Pacific university. They're kind of like the powerhouse on the West coast historically went there and anyone out there listening, if you're good enough to go D one, and you have evangelical beliefs or any type of belief system, still go D1 um, in retrospect. <laughs> It'll make you better because you, you, it, it's just a different level, number one. And then if someone tries to change your position, say, okay, you're going to end up changing anyway. They're smarter than you. That was the thing. That's all the D1 schools wanted me to play outside back. And I was like, ah, I'm not an outside back. I'm a midfielder or a forward. You go to, even go to the other, you go to NEIA and you're still on the top team, you still go to outside back. And so – my point being is, you know, I think we got to be more flexible in life, especially in marketing or in sports, and then go elite when you can, because you'll never regret it, in my opinion, um, if it's truly your passion. Like, you won't regret going to the best, even if you're not the best. It's better to do that than be the best on the wrong thing and realize later you should have tried for the bigger thing. Absolutely. Being around the best inspires and actually pushes you and makes you better. Yeah, a thousand percent. And it's nothing against the Pacific. I love the school, big, you know, part of the alumni there, but if you're trying to go pro, try to, I mean, try to go pro. If you want to go to management consulting, go to Boston Bay, McKinsey, Deloitte. Don't go to the other guys you never heard of. Yeah. And if you want to do that, you know, go to a different university. I learned too. <laughs> Parallels with business. Be around the best. You know, it's all about mindset. When you look at where you are now, and obviously your, your agency's growing, are you going to be really looking to scale in Austin? I mean, right now, I don't know. I'm experimenting with a lot of different ideas about what the future of work culture looks like. I like to look at finances. So one of the things you always want to look at when you're paying attention to finances is just how much your fixed costs are stuck and nothing gets your fixed costs stuck in business like a five-year lease. All the other costs you have are actually pretty malleable, I found. Um, the office space is a big one. I've also found that people love to work remote but still like to have an office. So not having an office isn't the wisest. So I'm going to be hopefully experimenting one day with like more of like a flexible office, which is like maybe not necessarily assigned desks, but like a, almost like a WeWork type environment, but for your own culture, A-class buildings in the hearts of cities, but maybe six, 8,000 square feet instead of 12, 15,000 square feet, a little outside of the city with more permanent desks. And so it'll create a little bit of a different work environment where you can work from home, you can come in the office, you always have a place to be. Something I'm thinking about. But yeah, right now we have a bunch of space in Austin. We have a bunch of space on the West Coast. We've got satellite offices in East Coast and uh, UK. But 
most of it is in Orange County still, and then we're slowly hiring up into Austin. Also, you have to think about the quality of life you want to be able to provide to your team based on the restrictions of your marketplace. In other words, I have a bunch of you know young men and women working here, majority uh, late 20s, early 30s. They're all starting to go through that conversation of kids, marriage, and homes. Kids, marriage, and home is a lot harder in Orange County, California than Austin, Texas. Like, not even remotely close. It's about 68% cheaper, actually, to live in Austin, Texas than Orange County. And the quality of life is negligible between the two at best. And so my goal also in Austin was to give myself away for the company to mature without people having to leave the company to deal with that maturing process in their own personal lives. And so, you know, it's just, there's a lot to it for me. Also helps too having an incubator of 50,000 students right there in your backyard with people yeah. wanting to move here. It's, it's a young, it's a dynamic, it's really scaled and grown from what it used to be, which is basically a college and government town. Yeah, exactly. So in the space that you're competing in, what's it like having to hire folks? Are you finding it pretty easy to find talented, experienced players, or are you having to find the right people and then train them based around your company's philosophy, the way that you approach SEO? And What we're finding is talented and experienced is borderline impossible. Talented and aspirational is difficult. And then everything else is pretty easy to find. <laughs> so our, our sweet spot is we, we do like an internship feeder program. It's a paid internship that then allows us to date before we marry. Same with our team. And then it really allows us to be highly selective in the process. We found that you're able to get really good talent still, but you don't have a lot of the onboarding on full weighted payroll in the sense of like teaching someone what to do. They can go through the internship program, kind of like an apprenticeship, learn the tricks of the trade, still get paid. And then when they're ready and if they're you know up to, and they've developed at the same path or speed as their kind of peers who they're with, uh, we can kind of select the top performers and bring them into the organization. If not, they all are better off. They have an awesome agency on their record for an internship and they can go work somewhere else, but maybe not here. And so it allows us to be really highly selective with talent. If we can find those talented, experienced people, we always have job postings out. We're always interviewing, but now we're doing a lot more. You know, we're doing personality assessments that are benchmarked against top performers. We're doing competency assessments that are benchmarked against top performers. And we're starting to get very, there's nothing more important in the agency, in my opinion, than great accounts and great people and whole growth model works based on those two fundamentals. If you can get great accounts and you get great people. The reason it works, and so this is kind of the flywheel effect if you've ever read Jim Collins. For me, my flywheel is great accounts paired with great people. Great people can be at full capacity. When someone's at full capacity in an agency, they have a great gross profit margin. That great gross profit margin allows you to spend money on sales and marketing to acquire new accounts and the cycle just keeps spinning. But if you've got inexperienced folks or untalented folks, you have to lower capacity drastically. There's not a lot of margin left and that your growth stalls. Are you finding that it's easy to go after those blue chip elephants out there or are they seeking you guys out? Nothing's easy about it, but at the same time, it's a lot easier to get accounts than service accounts. If you think about it, a world-class consultant, let's say has five accounts. We don't, like, we don't have high capacity here. The most someone works on really here is like seven accounts. You know, it's really low. I mean, industry average is about 15. So just to put context. So you have to build everything to what you want. You can't like half-ass it and build half the company the way you want. You can't be like, oh, we want to be the best agency. Everybody's got 15 accounts. So if we're doing SEO for someone, you have an account manager, 
but only has seven accounts or five accounts, if it's a larger account or even three, if it's a blue chip account. So you might only have like three blue chips. You have account manager who's managing, you know, five different meetings every week. Uh, their European team, their APAC team, their North American team, their communication team, their content team, their SEO team, whatever that is. And then you have simultaneously a full-time SEO and maybe even two SEOs on it who also only have two accounts. So you have a two to three person team plus leads with no accounts plus directors with no accounts. I mean, it's a whole thing to service that like we have about 70 something accounts and 60 something people to put context. So it's a lot to service those. So at any one time, you know, my whole thing is trying to create the most stable, safe environment as possible because those point of contacts, those clients, they're real people with a lot of pressure in their jobs. They might, you know, we work with a lot in software. So we've got a lot of over, I call them the impossible goals that help them get to their next impossible goals. So the way software works essentially is someone gives you $100 million and says, I, you can only get the next, the money isn't to have the money. The $100 million is get the $150 million or the $200 million. And the multiple in SaaS is so large that they can spend $100 million and it's worth it. So they give someone $100 million, give them a goal that no one in the industry has ever done before. And by the way, they've only done 25% of fully ramped. And then they say, if you could get to that, here's $150 million. They dang the carrot. And then those point of contacts, they're stressed, they're freaking out, they've got shares in the company, they need to go find an agency to support them, they go out there, hire us, and then we have to actually bring stability instead of stress back into their organization, help them benchmark more appropriately, leverage our experience and data, and then together hit the goals, re-educate the board, re-educate investors, and then allow for more high, high velocity growth, but it's also stable growth. Yeah, so it's hard. It's definitely harder to service than to acquire, in my opinion. Who are you working with? Are you working through agencies and they're reselling your services or are you selling direct for that yeah, team? Yeah, for us, I mean, we sell to our champion. I always believe that it's best to sell onto the person you'll be working with in the future, not the person who signs the checks. Nobody works with the people who signs the checks, uh, but everybody obsesses about selling into them. Those men and women actually don't find agencies. They tell their underling to go find agencies. They trust that person. They eventually sign off. So we sell into our point of contact. That's a, in software, maybe a director of demand generation demand generation manager in software. In enterprise, it might be a director of SEO, a director of advertising on the PPC side. It really just depends. Most of our clients are mid-market to enterprise software accounts or enterprise brands. So either a brand you've heard about, and they're usually B2B or lead gen focused, not a ton of e-commerce here, or their software, which is all lead gen. But we don't go through agencies for the most part. We go out and get it. Like I rank number one for SEO agency. I spend, you know, $50,000 a month on sales and marketing. That's where I was just kind of curious if there was uh, multiple channels that you're targeting within a are really just selling directly to the companies themselves. Yeah, we're grinding it. We're going, I, I don't like being codependent when you have this much headcount. You really want to be able to control your acquisition channels for new customers and you don't want to become codependent on any one channel or any one partner. And, you know, we've been growing so fast, you can't get our growth rate on simply referrals alone. Like if I stopped everything and rebuilt an agency right now, I could grow a lot more profitably because I would just start with blue chips and you could grow through referrals, reviews, and references based on your track record because I've already serviced all those blue chips and done that work before. And then I would just have blue chips. And then A accounts, no A accounts. The events you go for A accounts or the events other A accounts. It's just a whole thing. When you start where I started, which was at 250 bucks and selling $5 social media calendars, you, you don't, you, those people don't know any of the people you want in the future. And so you have to go get those future people aggressively and prove to them that while you've never done it for someone similar, you're their best option. 
And that is, I think, what I'm best at and why we've been able to grow despite the way we started is because I, my strengths are in kind of sales, marketing, and communication around accomplishing goals with an in-house marketing person. Gotcha. So you are also leading sales. Yeah, I lead the sales and marketing team. I mean, I have a full sales development team. I have a full account executive team, but that's where I focus a lot of time. Up to January this year, I'd say I focused pretty much 100% of my time. Now, just the maturing of myself and the organization, I'm really a lot more balanced. So I'm still probably, you know, 60, 70% of my time sales and marketing. And I have a partner who runs operations, but I'm still now 30, 40% of the time supporting operations and client services. Founders are typically the best salespeople for the organization. Yeah. No matter how good your sales teams are, it's always helpful to have the founder show up, come out, evangelize the business because they can tell the stories about what it was like when they were getting the agency going, why they got into it, why they're passionate about it. They got the hammer to make things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so I still do that for like the blue chips and the enterprise stuff. I fly out, I go, I do the whole thing. But the mid-market, you know, we have an awesome team that really supports. And then I show up on the SOWs and the contract conversations, but they're really owning those relationships. I, I very rarely own a relationship with the account anymore. It's hard to after a certain point. Yeah, you just can't. Like, you have to, you know, and the, the accounts come and go, the people don't, hopefully. And so, you know, you have to really understand, too, that managing your team and your culture is really what actually manages the accounts. And so that's where I end up focusing now a lot of my time is on the team the culture more so than anything, probably even the sales and marketing. When somebody signs on, are they typically a yearly or monthly engagement? How does that work? Yeah, they're annual engagements for us. So search marketing is mostly when you start, I mean, you're lucky you'll work for free practically. So it's a little different, but once you get to a certain level of proficiency, capability and all that, you can start to essentially ask for annual contracts they're still very difficult to get. The good news is where we work, all our vendors essentially require annual contracts. So it's a little tongue in cheek for them to not want one. Okay, you, so can't, you can't budget, you can't plan, you can't forecast without having some yeah. side of, type of paper. And quite honestly, everybody knows the papers at the end of the day, they can get out of it. But having it gives you the ability to at least invest and put dollars towards something and, and hire the right people in order to service it. Exactly. I mean, there's no contract in the world that's worth litigation that I've ever seen. So it's more just trying to say, we want 12 months to accomplish what we set out to together. Because if you, anyone's ever done marketing for three months, they sure as heck know they didn't do what they wanted to. Same with six months, even 12 months. I mean, marketing, it, like a lot of our clients are hugely successful now, but we've been with them for three years. It wasn't like a, oh yeah, we did this and that. I mean, if it was so easy, everybody would hire us. They'd be super successful and they wouldn't need us, you know? Like if it was that easy, it, it would be different. And a lot of times too, the hard part about being an agency is you can't solve product market fit. You can't solve pricing. At least I can't in my agency. And so, you know, there are some difficulties sometimes around. That's why I like working now, not with the startups. Startups are hard to market. They're, they're borderline impossible to be really successful as an agency. Because number one, 99.9% of startups aren't successful. So there's that. And it's not due to their marketing. It's due to their product and their fit. And so, you know, you want to work with established businesses in the consulting game because you're going to be more successful as a firm. You're going to be able to have higher retention rates with your clients because they're just inherently successful businesses that you can help develop. It's really hard to push, you know, an unsuccessful business. You mentioned something earlier when you first started talking about how you can't have a, a tremendous amount of customers and be the best of what you do. 
I agree with that 100% because the, the amount of time it takes to onboard, invest, and, and service a small account is almost identical to what it costs to do Truth. a very large account. And so it's a lot easier to go out there and elephant hunt. Yep. yep. And be at the very top of that. Everybody wants to be there, but very few people have the ability to do it and do it effectively and do it long term. Um, and it's no different than the business that I'm in or any others. It's just some business models are, are set up to service that long end of the tail with high transactions, small. Do- Great. There's a lot of people that are very, very, very good at that. But it sounds like for what you're really trying to accomplish, you guys are like, guys, we're the best. This is why we're focused here. This is why you fit our model. And this is what we're going to deliver. Is that an accurate interpretation? It's perfectly accurate. No, it's perfectly accurate. And you're totally spot on. I think the thing I would also warn anyone listening is if you're in professional services and you're serving Main Street, software's coming for you and you can't win. Okay. Go look at accounting. Check out bench.co. Check out some of those providers that are eating up market share like nobody's business. If you're on e-commerce and you're trying to serve with small e-commerce shops, check out Kit CRM. It's a free tool by Shopify that does all the ad creative, texts you in real time and asks you, hey, I noticed 18% surge in sunglasses on the store today. Would you like us to launch this display ad that we've already created to this exact segmented audience? If press yes, and you can type back yes, and this thing is so damn good, I don't even know how an agency could compete with that in real time. Because an agency couldn't even service it at that price point. The price point, by the way, is free. Free. And so. Because it's part of their their monthly service fees that they're already getting for hosting. Yeah, AI built in with the, I mean, it's unreal, Rusty. When I saw that, I was like, I'm selling everything I'm doing in the small business. Right now, we're developing our own software tools to replace small business income. Since we do have great market share, we're developing our own learning management software. Since we do have great market share. In other words, we're replacing all of our small business professional services with high gross profit software and other tools that allows us to still capture the, the vault. I love to be a big brand. I love to market. I love to sell. So because of that and the nature of search is that it's more of a net than it is a spear. If you don't have a way to capture all that investment, you also don't have a way to show up 10% of the time effectively. So check this out, right? If you're doing search marketing and you're doing enterprise, you're a victim of the percentages of your market. So let's say you're an enterprise agency like myself. I can show up number one for SEO agency. Okay. Let's say there's 10,000 people searching that exact term a month. Let's just do hundred people searching it just for the sake of argument. Okay. So I can do good at math. Of those hundred, five to 10 of them are mid market and one to five of them are enterprise. The other 90, aren't a fit and I can't monetize, even though I have to spend a ton of money to go get the 10 from search. And it's worth it every time. The clients are always worth it, but you're throwing away 90% of your revenue opportunity and have no way to service it. And if you do service it, that 90% of revenue turns into 0% of cash because the margin's not there. And so you have to figure out how do you take 90% and make it you know, 50% cash. And the way you do that is through software and other scalable models with high gross profit margins on the delivery of whatever the person purchased. And so that's kind of how we're blending really, really educational. And like, the thing is, is just because someone's not a client today doesn't mean they won't be in 10 years as a person, not as an account. Most accounts will never be an account, but most people could always be an account. And so it's a different way of looking at it. And so if I can get into the education of marketers around search, if I can get into the tools that marketers love to use, 
one day when they have the budget and they know we're expensive, they're going to be, they're, we're their dream. We're the Ferrari they never could afford. And now they can, we're going to get to work with them. Yeah. And so it's a different game of saying, I'm not trying to win tomorrow. I'm trying to win in five years and 10 years when no one else is around. Because you can't be around in five to 10 years if you're servicing small business because software will eat your pie. You know, you mentioned AI. How is AI impacting search? Obviously, it sounds like it's really doing it on the small business side, but for the type of work you are doing, is there opportunities for y'all to deploy that as well? Yes, there is. We've built our own data deliverable here. So we have SQL developers on staff that are, because well, I believe in search marketing, advertising, organic needs to be based on cost per deal, not cost per acquisition, especially in enterprise, because theoretically the thing that hurts enterprise marketing the most is men and women coming from direct to consumer or high volume businesses and relying on what's called a cost per acquisition model. And so what I mean by that is if you come in as a marketer, historically, the easiest way for you to create value, whether you're in-house or agency, is cut costs. So in-house, you fire people, you cut agencies, you do whatever you can. Look, I'm generating ROI. You know that ROI is a long game. What's the thing you can do in the short term, right? Upsides, potential, costs are guaranteed. And so people cut costs. Makes sense. Now, if you are advertising in that manner, you're making a mistake. In other words, you're advertising to lower your cost per marketing data, not cost per sales data. And the problem is, is your most expensive marketing data, your most expensive marketing goals are also your most valuable sales goals and they don't scale proportionally. In other words, if you have $175 cost per acquisition on your most expensive term and $125 cost per acquisition on your least expensive, people will automatically try to lower their cost by go to the 125. The difference is a $2,000 deal and a $500,000 deal. And so the scale between the two is so dramatic that it's backwards, but you can't prove it if you don't have CRM integration. So I have a full team that integrates to CRM and answer your AI question. We're working towards natural language processing to get rid of manual reporting, for example. Like how can natural language processing replace the manual reports my team's build? Now the hard part we're finding is AI doesn't help with the largest pain points that enterprise companies have which is, yeah, it will, it will. But right now it's resource allocation, goal setting, internal communication, internal communication, communication, goal setting, communication, communication, <laughs> and communication. And so that's the thing, is the game isn't even the same when you get to enterprise. It's not, it's not even, it's nothing like you dream when you get there. You're like, well, like we have accounts that are some of the blue chips in the world and I never got access to their data because they don't allow it. Well, you rely on third-party tools. You develop APIs for those third-party tools so you can make them more malleable than the interface you might have if you just pay for the tool. That's why I've developed for here so we can build our own custom tools off of existing tools. And you get really good at market assessments. You get really good at looking at a search engine results page and putting yourself in the seat of the customer and evaluating things based on experience and expertise. And that's why they still pay the big consultants is because they have the data. It's so much of it and they have no time. The big thing with in-house is nobody has time. They, they just don't, even the people that are supposed to only do what we do are distracted by their managers. Managers are professionals at distracting, myself included. We are the best distractors in the world. And that's why outsourced partners still exist. I think more so than anything is we're very difficult to distract if we're good because we'll check you because we don't have, you don't, 
you're not going to give us a performance review tomorrow. You're not our boss in the sense that, you know, you're our account and we have to perform for you, but we don't have to interact with you the same as if we're in-house. And so we can say, you know, Rusty, that's a great point, but let's give this two more weeks. Here's what we've seen for our other 50 accounts in similar situations. And here's the data to support our hypothesis. You're like, damn, this is what I always wanted for my team, but your team can't give it to you. Number one, they don't have the cojones. Number two, they don't have the data. And so number three, they have to work there. It's just, it's a different environment. And so that's why agencies exist, especially at the next level, is to create a check and balance of power almost and strategy, more so than anything. It's, it's a lot less about, I don't know, everything that it is for the smaller companies. Sounds like there's been a lot of lessons learned over the last few years working with these bigger yeah. accounts. Yeah, I mean, and it's only, you know, I'm learning every day. It's a game, but it's what I love. And, you know, our accounts are truly loving working with us because I think we love it and we're fully committed to it. It's not, it's not a blip on our radar. It's not a, oh my gosh, how do we ever, it's our whole business is servicing them, you know? And yeah. so when they get in that environment and they're like, oh, you have scheduled quarterly business reviews, scheduled weekly calls, quarterly, scheduled monthly data analysis. You fly out to me, you do, it's like, okay, this is what I always dreamed of. And that's what we're trying to build. You know, the Nordstrom is not the Nordstrom track. The perfect client experience. Yeah. It's really about this customer centricity and learning that. And that's what we're still developing. I mean, we're getting better at that every day. But that's that next level. That's what makes those truly elite agencies elite is the culture they even bring into the account and that experience they create. Well, definitely. It sounds like you're heading in the right direction with what you're building there. What's next? Next is, um, yeah, just developing those kind of tools for the first time to kind of, we, we raised our rates. We're out of small business for the most part, you know, where prices doesn't make sense for them. And then we're replacing that uh, with tools and software. I mean, that's what's next. And just, Developing, learning more about talent, 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 talent. You know, I think we have a pretty good understanding of market positioning and ability to get accounts. Now it's really about how do you get from having A plus talent to A plus 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 talent, which is the, the dream for every professional services firm in the world. Hire slow, fire fast. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, and really figuring out who that is. When you find them, you, you'll know. Uh, the hardest thing is keeping those really good people. Um, and keeping them engaged and giving them something that they can really own and run with. Pay your ideal customer for your agency. Yeah, they have a couple different ones. I say ideal would be Salesforce. Okay. Why is that? Huge market share, global, has high growth goals, publicly traded, needs to hit targets, great market positioning. I still think could do better from the channel of search. Great fit. Unlimited cash flow as long as you hit goals, tough standards, tons of different business units, incredibly difficult to actually execute anything, but a fun challenge. And then, you know, on the B2B side or the enterprise side, I think someone like Honeywell or uh, General Electric would be, you know, phenomenal. Someone like a PayPal on the software side, phenomenal. Stripe, I love what they're doing. Um, and then other, obviously, you know, businesses that, you know, I, love, I respect the values on is always really exciting with, we're pretty particular with who we work with. We don't work with organizations that don't share our values in the way they communicate and what they're trying to accomplish for their business. I don't need to push, you know, my business is helping businesses grow. I want to help businesses I believe in grow. Um, and so, but no, those are kind of my ideal accounts or those blue chips. Blue chip software is ideal, ideal. Um, blue chip in general, I mean, we're more than like, I think we have one of the best deliverables on the market for 
it's just software. I mean, I think we are uniquely gifted at for that large enterprise software company. You found your sweet spot. Yeah. One last question. What was that you've learned now that you wish you would have known back when you were starting? <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't change even when you get to where I'm at. <laughs> Every day yeah. I'm learning something. I think there's two big things I've learned, uh, especially in the most recent kind of storm of business. Number one, people do what you inspect, not what you expect. Really, 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 really wish I knew that. In other words, if you got a bunch of people that are trusting a bunch of people, you're in store for a big problem. And that doesn't mean don't trust people. It doesn't mean micromanage. It means if someone says, hey, I did this. Say, awesome. Let's in our one-on-one this week, let's take a look, to, take a moment to go through it together. That's trust it. but verify. Trust but verify. So people do what you inspect, not what you expect. Um, so that's a huge thing I learned. And then there's a massive difference between training and coaching. I think it's the biggest thing I've learned. Is, Wouldn't that be considered leadership? Yeah, I guess. But like, you know, you can have a really good training program, you know, that all the new hires go through and it's a self kind of thing. You have a bunch of different, maybe learning management tools. People go through it all. It's another thing to sit and do life or do work with someone to actually hold their hand and go through it with them and coach them on it and to sit there with them and work with them, not give them something so that they can train themselves and then they're ready to work with you because they sure as hell are not, no matter how good your training program is. And you need a great training program, but there's no substitute for coaching, especially when it comes to talent development. And so those are the two huge things I think I've learned that I had no idea on even, you know, six months ago. That's awesome. So how are you improving on that? One-on-one -on -one coaching. So, you know, everyone here, so all the directors, um, we scored all the talent and then we have kind of a bottom up mentality. And so, you know, I think agencies are a lot like a soccer team more than a basketball team, a basketball team. You can have one superstar. You might not win a championship, but you sure as heck can go to the playoffs. Yeah. The Bucks found that out the hard way. Yeah. Giannis is great, but he, I mean, yeah, Drew, you have Bledsoe. I mean, come on. So like they, they don't have enough. Right. And then simultaneously you look at a soccer team and you can have Messi greatest player in the world and you can move four zero and not go to the champions league final because you got weak holes throughout your roster, no depth and all. And it's almost every team in the world, frankly, there are very few that are so good. Those freak teams or they can have gaps like a LeBron James team back in the day where they can have gaps and still win. But the truth is, is he couldn't even win without, you know, the team. And, and so it doesn't matter really, it's a bottom-up mentality. So the way we're doing that is, you know, directors actually have people in their offices. So whenever, and I did this through example, whenever I wanted to get out of sales, for example, I had an account executive in my office for a couple months and they heard every call, every proposal, every preparation, and I walked them through everything. And they, sure, I lost all my privacy and it sucks, but they have a higher close rate than I did now. So, I mean, who really won? I think we both won. And, and so, and so did our customer. And so to me, you know, creating this coaching environment it requires humility and stuff like that, but it, it, it's, you know, it's been huge. I like it and I appreciate it. And this was really fun. Uh, but unfortunately, Garrett, we are now at the end of our show. So thank you again for sharing all your incredible experiences with us. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck going forward. And for everyone out there listening, if you'd like to learn more about how Directive can help your business, I'll make sure to include their contact information webpage uh, within our podcast notes. Also, if you're not already following and subscribing to our podcast, please do that so that you can receive all the latest updates when new podcasts get released each and every week.
Thanks again, Gary, for being on the show. And for everyone else, bye-bye.